Well, good morning. It's uh, great to worship together like that. And uh, let's worship in prayer right now. Father, we uh, come into your presence and we declare that you are our great God and Savior. And we give you thanks and we give you praise this morning. And we come to you because uh, we get to worship you. And we don't deserve that right. We didn't earn that right. And uh, we, we didn't uh, stumble across it on our own because we figured something out. You have made us to be and called us to be worshipers of you. And you have made that possible in Christ. And we give you thanks. And we do worship you this morning. And we, we uh, thank you for your word that tells us all of these things, tells us about who you are and about who we are and how we can know you. And that is... Uh, uh, that is so crucial and so important for us, and we would be lost had you not told us in your word um, who you are and how we can know you. And so this morning as we come to your word and we deal with a big passage, it's, it's a, a lot of verses in this passage, and, and it's a, a giant subject, and it's, it's a very strong theme that runs throughout Scripture, and there's a lot here. And so I pray, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would work in our hearts, that we would be attentive to what your word says, that we would be engaged with you, that we would be sensitive to you, that that we would be responsive to you and what you have for us, even this morning, from your word. We want to see you glorified in this time, and we seek that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to open up to uh, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, and while you're turning there, I want to uh, give you a peek into our family. We, uh, we love Lord of the Rings. And, um, and I, of course, you know, being as old as I am, read them before I ever saw the movies, so this is more of a literary reference than it is a movie reference. I know people frown on that sometimes, movie references. For me, it's a literary reference. No, I'm kidding. So uh, I, I did read them first and have been a fan forever. But uh, if you remember the first time you met Faramir, okay, Faramir is this ranger. He's, a, he's, he's, he's out in the, he's not technically a ranger, but he's out in the woods and Frodo and Sam who are on this mission to, uh, to destroy the ring. That's a spoiler, by the way, sorry. Um, they're on a mission to, to destroy this ring and they're sneaking across the land and they get captured by Faramir. And they don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. And so uh, they're, they're not sure, and, and uh, there's this great uh, conversation, a couple of conversations that happened between Sam and Faramir, and, and, um, it, but you don't know who Faramir is, and you don't know what he's going to be like. And remember, his older brother, Boromir, who was the, you know, the bigger, stronger, better-looking, older you know, one, he, he turned out to be a bad guy for a while, and so you're thinking, is Faramir the same thing? And, um, but there comes a moment when you get to see who Faramir really is. It's really a defining moment. And from that point on, as we know Faramir through the rest of the book, he's only a good guy. And not only is he a good guy, he's a really, really good guy. That was a defining moment for him. He had to make a decision. Am I going to serve my family? Am I going to serve my kingdom? Or am I going to serve a greater cause in uh, protecting mankind and, and all the free people from this ring? And so that's a defining moment. And, and, um, and we, we always chuckle about, you know, uh, Sam's comment that, you know, to, to Farmir that you've proved your worth and it is a, the, the finest quality. And, uh, we, we, uh, in our family, that's kind of an uh, inside joke with us. But I wonder about yourself what kind of defining moments you've had. Maybe, maybe you haven't had a single defining moment, like 
one moment in life that determined or that that turned your trajectory a particular direction. You know, maybe if you grew up in a Christian home, you didn't have, um, you know, some big conversion moment. Uh, you've, you've like known Christ and walked with Christ for as long as you can remember. And, and uh, maybe you don't have a big moment like that. But today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 13 and 14 and 15. And we're going to look at that defining moment for the nation of Israel. It's, uh, it's the crossing of the Red Sea. And really, by the way, just, just as a, as an aside here, Almost every English version translates it as the Red Sea. It should be the Reed Sea. When you look at the Hebrew, it's very clear. It's the Sea of Reeds. But because the Greek Septuagint, translated by the Jews in the early centuries before Christ, translated into Greek, they translated the Red Sea for some reason that we don't know. And so everybody's translated the Red Sea after that. It doesn't really matter because, though it says Reed Sea very clearly in the Hebrew, we have no idea what sea that is. <laughs> because reeds don't grow in salt water particularly the reeds they're talking about, they go in fresh water, so it should be a lake. Of course, they call lakes seas. Think of the Sea of Galilee, right? So it should be some kind of a lake, And uh, but they don't know what sea. They don't know where it is. Maybe this one, maybe that one. All kinds of people have conjectured different things, and so it stays Red Sea in your Bible, and may as well, because they, the Reed Sea doesn't refer to any sea that anybody can name anyway. But uh, but it is the crossing of the Red Sea and the Reed Sea, and I'm going to say those interchangeably. And uh, um, so whichever one comes out, don't think I'm trying to make a specific point because I said Reed versus Red. I'm not. It's just going to come out. But but uh, as we as we look at our passage today, we're going to start in chapter 13, and and we're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to read for a while here, right? So uh, we're going to move on through into chapter 19. When Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. By the way, that it means in, it says literally in, they went up in 50s. Were they equipped for battle or were they in like an organized fashion? I don't think they were equipped for battle, but... Nevertheless, in 50s, they went up in 50s. Moses took the bones of Egypt uh, with him for Joseph, took the bones of Joseph with him for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirot, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. 
And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So there's there's something I want to point out here as we pause there for a moment. There's a theme that we see running throughout uh, the book of Exodus that that we would be um, mistaken not to not to notice. It's a very important theme, and it's the the theme of service. Serving whom? You see, all the way back in chapter one of Exodus, think back that far a couple months ago, right where the, the the Hebrews were first having to work as slaves. Well, the root of that word slave is servant. They were working in service to Egypt, to Pharaoh. And their, their service makes them groan because of its harshness, so much so that they cry out to God, right? And so then God comes and he visits, uh, he, he, he draws Moses to the burning bush. And what, is, what does God say to Moses at the burning bush? He tells him that the people should be brought out of the land so that they can serve God on this very mountain. Same word. Moses goes to Pharaoh with the message to the Lord. What does he say? Let my son go that he may serve me. Same word. Do you remember Pharaoh's response in chapter 5? It wasn't good. Pharaoh's response was to increase their service. <laughs> he gave them heavier service. He made them, ser- made them serve harder, right? He made them be his servants. And then that same theme of service, serving Pharaoh, continues all throughout the uh, plagues where God repeatedly tells Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. So there's a, there's a war going on here regarding the service of the, the children of Israel. Whom are they going to serve? And then what happens? After Pharaoh let them go, what does he realize? Here in chapter 14 and verse 5, first thing he realizes, why have we let these people go from serving us? Right? So the issue is, who are they going to serve? And, and uh, right to this point, they've been serving Pharaoh. They've been serving Egypt. And God has saved them. He has drawn them out. He has, he has gone through all of the plagues and all that stuff to save the people out so that they will serve him. But then, look at verse 10. Chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Same word. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So God had gone through all of that to call the people out of their service to Pharaoh and out of their service, their slavery to Egypt. He had gone through all of that to bring them out on their own. And the first thing they do when they see Pharaoh and the, and the, and the army coming behind them is they think, this serving the Lord thing is not really working out. It would be better just to go back to Egypt. Let's do that. right? We don't want to die out here. Let's go back and serve uh, Pharaoh again. What's the point? The point is that we're, they're going to be in service to someone. Israel's going to be in service to someone. There will be no ultimate independence for Israel. The Lord is delivering them not with the goal that they would be free. That's not the end goal. The end goal is delivering them that they would be free to serve Him. 
They're going to be in service to serve him, not the Egyptians that they've been serving for the last number of centuries. And beyond that, being in service to God is what is best for them. The theme of service will continue throughout Exodus. They're going to learn to worship and serve only him. They're going to learn how to build the tabernacle as a focal point of service to him. They're going to learn how to establish a priesthood of people whose lives are dedicated to serving him. So this theme of service will continue, and we'll see it play out in the rest of the book. Whom will they serve? What's the application for us? Paul says at the end of Romans 6 that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. 6.22 We are not ultimately free. We are not free in the sense of being self-determining or being the captain of our souls. We are creatures. We are created to be in service. And so we will always be in service. Either serving sin, the world, the devil and all the forces that are rebellious to God, or we will serve the Lord himself and his righteousness. And so the question from this part is, whom will you serve? Because you're serving someone. But he's not done there. Our passage continues. And Moses said to the people, verse 13, chapter 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You see, Moses is talking to the people. He sees them panicking, and his response to them is, Fear not, stand firm. Fear not, stand firm. But they're not supposed to stand still. But stand firm. But first of all, what he tells them there, fear not, is a very common refrain throughout the Bible. And it makes sense when you understand the world in the, in the picture that the Bible gives of the world. If sovereign God, if almighty God, if the God who created everything and who exists forever and is almighty, if he is in charge of the situation, you're in good hands. Why would you fear? Particularly since we read everywhere in Scripture his love for his people. If that same God who is almighty and in control of all things, if he loves you and he is good, what do you have to be afraid of? There's nothing to fear. And so that's a, that's a common theme that we see all throughout Scripture. And, but he goes on and he says, he says, fear not and stand firm. Well, that, that word stand firm or that phrase stand firm means to, to take your position or to present yourself. In all but one of the uses in Exodus, I went through and looked at every use of that word in the book of Exodus, and in all but one of them, it means to put yourself in a position to watch what the Lord is going to do and in a position to respond when he acts. Present yourself to God. Watch what he's going to do and move when he says move. That's what it means to stand firm. Moses' sister stood firm. She positioned herself. She took her stand to watch when Moses' little baby in the basket was floating down the river, to watch and see what was going to happen. And we see that she saw what happened and she jumped into, into action, right? Moses repeatedly takes, takes his stand or takes his position before Pharaoh. That took some guts to walk in and stand before Pharaoh. 
the mightiest man on earth, and say, let my people go. He took his stand. And in chapter 19, Israel is going to present themselves. They're going to, they're going to come and present themselves at Mount Sinai before God himself, ready to listen for what God has and ready to respond to what God has. But he continues, look at verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. See, they they were to stand firm, but they were not to stand still. They were not to be inactive. That's not what it means here. They, They were to stand firm, but they were to be in action and ready to move. The people were crying out to the Lord. They were complaining about their situation. But there comes a time when praying is not all you should be doing. There's action to be taken. And that action takes precedence over your complaining to the Lord. There's another story in, in, in the Bible. It's not too long after this. It's in Joshua chapter 7. And uh, if you remember the history of Joshua and you have Achan, Achan took the stuff and he hit it. And then the, the people of Israel go into battle and they had such a great victory previously. Now they go into battle against Ai and they get defeated. And they're thinking, what happened? Ai is not even a big place, and we got whooped, and why did we get beat, and and what happened? And so you have Joshua there praying to God, and he's saying, Lord, we've been defeated, and people are going to think that you're a weak God, and that we're a weak people, and why did you bring us out, and why did you, why is this all happening? He's complaining to God about that whole situation. And you know what the Lord says to him? Here's what the Lord says to him. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Get up and consecrate the people. This isn't the time to pray. This is the time for action. Do something. Don't just stand there complaining to me. Go and act. And so there comes a time when you need to move, when praying is not all there is. You should pray. You should pray, but praying is not all you should do. And this is one of those instances when there's, uh, that's what's going on, is he's saying, get up and be ready to move. There's an interesting thing here at the end of 14. You don't really see it. Really, kind of the King James has it, has it kind of the best here at the end of 14 where it says, um, I'll read 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. It sounds very comforting, right? Just, shh, just it's okay. Just sit there quietly. The Lord's going to fight for you. That's kind of the message we get from uh, most of our English versions. That, that doesn't seem to be the case in the Hebrew. It's terse and it's choppy. And the point is, the Lord's going to fight for you, but be quiet. Enough with the fussing. There is a time when we, when we bringing our things to the Lord, bringing our problems to the Lord, when we have just passed over into complaining to the Lord and thinking that is what's going to accomplish something, when really what needs to be done is that I need to step out and do it. If I'm fussing about some recurring sin in my life, Praying longer about it. Praying is a good thing. I need to take action. I need to take action. And sometimes that's the case. We just need to step out. We need to move out. We need to take that action that God is indicating we need to take. Praying is a very good thing. But praying is not all we should do. And that's what happens here with, uh, with Moses and the people. Be quiet and be ready to move. Let's continue reading in verse 16 of chapter 14. 
I'm going to read for for a, a pretty good chunk here. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. As an aside, you'd think they would have figured that out with the last ten plagues that went on. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned, covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. There's a lot to mention in here, but I want to pick up on, on one theme that happens first. Look back at verse 5, excuse me, verse 10 of chapter 14. When the people drew near, the people of, uh, the, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And that's when they panicked and said, uh, you know, do, did you bring us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? It was better to serve in Egypt. Let's go back and serve in Egypt. We want to go back there. Because they saw the Egyptians coming, and they feared greatly, and they trembled. And that's when they fell into a panic, right? But let's, let's pick up our passage and keep going. Look at, uh, look at verse 30 and 14. We're going to finish up the chapter here. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians. They had seen them before, by the way. They had seen the Egyptians before when they were marching after them, when they were a terrifying army that threw them into a panic and everything went south. Remember that? They had seen the Egyptians before, but here they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Israel saw the Egyptians dead. They saw the Lord's great power. So they feared the Lord and they believed in him. What was different? What was the difference? Earlier, they saw something and they flew into a panic. And they thought the world was going to end. And they regretted the whole conversation with Moses. And they wanted to just go back into the land. They saw something there, 
and it drove them into a panic. The difference was where their eyes were fixed. Because here, when the Lord delivered, they saw the Egyptians again, but they saw what the Lord had done. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They saw that what the Lord had done to deliver them. They saw something different. Do you know, people tend to have a higher view of other things than they do of God. You know, if, if people viewed God more highly, evangelism would be a whole lot easier. And discipleship would be a whole lot easier if we had higher views of God, right? But the problem is that people tend to view many other things higher than God for various reasons. But if you have a higher view of the pleasures and the rewards of sin than you do of God, then you will never want to repent of your sins, and they will keep you from God. If you have a higher view of your own righteousness or of your own innocence or of your own accomplishments than you do of God, then you will never look to Him for the only righteousness that can make you acceptable in His sight. The righteousness of God Himself in Christ. And that will keep you from God. If you have a higher view of your own sin and your own fallenness than you do of God, then you will return to that sin again and again, and that sin will be practically the Lord of your life. When you have a higher view of your sin and your own fallenness, when you think more of your sin and you think more of your own fallenness than you do of how great God is, that's the path you're going to stay on. You're going to return to it again and again. Israel saw the Egyptians dead this time. They saw the Lord's power, so they feared him above all, and they believed in him above all. The difference was what they saw, where they kept their eyes fixed. I'm reminded of Peter walking on the water. And when he saw the wind and the waves, he feared and he sank. Where were his eyes fixed? For a while they were fixed on Jesus. For a while he was trusting in Jesus and he was doing what Jesus said to do. And then he got distracted and he got to looking around him at the things that were scary. And his view of these things around here became higher than his view of God. And down he went into the water. It has to do with where your eyes are fixed. But there's another point here. Have you noticed? I know we haven't read verse or chapter 15 yet. We will. But you've read through this before, and you can see, even just looking at the heading of, your, of chapter 15 there, it's a song. Chapter 15 moves into a song. Have you noticed that chapter 14 was a telling of the people traveling through the Red Sea and how God delivered them and all that went on and with Pharaoh and the chariots and the, and the sea coming over them and, the, and all that stuff is a, is a prose account. And then you get to chapter 15, and it's a song about the same thing. There's a response of song. They sing in response. Now, I've, t- I've told you all, I've made no, no bones about the fact that I am not a confident singer. I sing about like I golf, okay? Every now and again, I hit one really well, and I think, hey, I could totally do this thing, and then it's all over. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not, I'm not a confident singer, but, but you see in Scripture, and you see in this passage right here, the response of singing, You have the actions that happened in 14, and then you have singing about those same actions in 15. And so I'm just going to read this song. I'm not going to sing it to you. But I'm going to read this song, starting in chapter 15 and verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. 
The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. And the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What a song. What a song. But why a song? You ever thought about that? Why respond in song? I had a friend uh, who was a new Christian ask me, why, why do we sing in church? It's the weirdest thing. Standing together, facing the same direction, singing side by side, songs that they'd never heard before. And I thought it was pretty strange when I was a brand new Christian too. Well, we sing for a couple of reasons. First of all, because they sang in the Bible, right? So it's a good thing we should do. More than that, we're commanded to in the Bible. The Bible commands us to sing, and so we do so. Remember this one from Colossians 3? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're commanded to sing. And so even a, you know, shaking kind of singer like me, even I sing because we're commanded to. Well, second of all, we sing because singing is a powerful and a moving way to celebrate what we hold to be most dear, most important. Love songs celebrate love, right? Victory songs celebrate moments of important military triumph, 
right? Songs move us. They move us. And so we sing about what is ultimately important. And so, by the way, that's one reason we need to be careful what we listen to. Because the songs will move us. But what direction? And they will teach us. But what? What are they moving us with? And so we need to be cautious of what we listen to. Because it will move us. By the way, have you ever thought about why we sing the way we do at Parkside? Why, you know, if you've, you've been to other churches and you see that singing is different in different places, why do we sing the way we do at Parkside? We, we don't have a, a, a loud band with giant speakers, right? And people in the front with, you know, earplugs in their ears and, and, and cranked loud music. Why do we not do that, right? It's not just because of, you know, uh, uh, years of tradition, by the way. It's on purpose. It's because in Scripture... This is not the worship band. This is not the choir, the people up here standing. We out there are the choir. We are the ones who are engaged in singing to the Lord. And the way we do music is, is intentionally designed to draw us into singing, to enter into that singing ourselves so that we realize that we are the choir and we join in and we are moved to worship God. That's why we do it that way. It's not just because we're traditional and we don't like loud music. That's not it. We want to be drawn in as a congregation to worship Christ in song together. And so that's why we do worship here uh, in song the way we do it. It's powerful. We are meant to enter into worship. And that's what they've done here. They've just seen a, a mighty deliverance by God. And they break out in song. They want to sing about it. And so there's a singing response. And finally, the last point I want to look at here is that we see a God. And this, by the way, this is, we're, we're, we're getting to the real point of the narrative. That God is sovereign over nature. Completely powerful over nature. Right? See, thus far in the book of Exodus, we've seen kind of this, uh, this wrestling match, if you will, this battle, this combat between Yahweh, the God, uh, you know, the God of the Israelites and Pharaoh, who himself was deity. And, you know, we've talked about that. We've seen that kind of, um, that kind of battle going on. And you see that really play out in the plagues, right? You see, uh, this conflict between the God of the Israelites and the God and the gods of the Egyptians. And they're in combat. And we've seen God be very victorious, right? But here in our passage, it takes it a step further, right? And it, and it shows us that God is not powerful merely over men, nor merely over some false pantheon, the gods of the Egyptians. There's something else going on here. And what's going on is that in the surrounding cultures, they had creation accounts also. Just like Israel has a creation account that we read in Genesis. They had creation accounts, and usually in these creation accounts, there would be a, a body of water, the sea, and it's the place of chaos. And so in these, in these other creation accounts for these different religions, for the different people around, you've got the body of the sea, and it's chaotic, and it's usually represented by some sort of a monster, uh, maybe Leviathan, the word Rahab refers to that sometimes, um, Tiamat, you know, you've got this idea where you've got this monster of the chaos of the sea, and what would happen in these stories is that the gods would decide, okay, who's going to go and slay the monster? Well, I'm afraid to, or I'm not able to, or whatever, and some god would 
would, would, would come out there and he would defeat that monster and he would therefore be declared the high God. He would be the one who would be able then to create and to rule in that land and all that stuff. That's how it was decided who was the highest God. The one who had defeated the sea. The one who had slain this monster. The one who had tamed the beast. Because the sea is still there. And it's still chaotic. But at least this God tamed the beast. That, that, was, the, that was the creation narrative of, of these other uh, nations around them. So if you put it in that culture... What's happening? Do you have God doing battle with the sea? Do you have this big, you know, the sea, the sea represents the strongest power of chaos, the strongest representation of evil in that sense. And is God doing mighty battle with the sea? No. It's such an easy task. He, he gives it to, to a, the lowly underling, Moses. Here, Moses, take your stick and your hand and do this. And it'll do what you say. God doesn't have to do mighty power, mighty battle. He doesn't have to do combat with the sea to win. He is simply powerful over the sea. And this is a bigger statement than him being sovereign over men. This is a bigger statement than, than him having defeated the pantheon, the, 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 the gods of the Egyptians. This is a bigger statement. This is, this is a demonstration that God is absolutely powerful. Nothing competes with him. Oh, your, your, your biggest uh, representative, your biggest guy that you can bring into battle is the sea? Okay, here, Moses, do this thing, and it will do exactly what you say. That's what's going on in this passage. We have God who is powerful and strong over nature. And for us, especially those of us who've you know, been in church a long time, that may not seem like a huge deal. That is a huge deal. The creation, the nature, it, it's, it's utterly, all of the elements are utterly at God's disposal. Utterly and completely at God's disposal. And it's not a wrestling match. It just is. So he is sovereign over nature. Here's what I want, what I want to close with. We're reading in Exodus chapter 15, and that's all we're going to read there for the day. But if you will turn in your Bible to Revelation 15. So we're early on in the Bible. We've been reading in Exodus. It's, it's about the formation of the, of the nation of Israel. This is, this is their turning point. This is their defining moment. They've, they've been brought through the Red Sea. They are no longer in Egypt. They're not concerned with Egypt anymore. They've been brought through there. Pharaoh's been defeated. The sea has been defeated. Uh, all the plagues. Remember the plagues that happened? All that kind of stuff. And look in Revelation 15. I'm just going to read a few verses. Revelation 15. So here we are at the end. That was the beginning, and here we are at the end. Revelation 15, and we read this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues. We've read about plagues once or twice. Which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea, a sea of glass. Is it raging? No. Is it chaotic? No. Is it dangerous? No. It's a sea of glass. It has been utterly and completely, finally tamed. There's a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses. The song we just read. Moses, the servant of God, 
But he goes on. It doesn't stop there. That would be amazing if we saw that kind of parallelism, if we saw those kind of common words and common themes from all the way back in the formation of the nation of Israel all the way into the future in, the, in Revelation 15, that, that we would see that kind of a connection would be amazing. But he doesn't stop there. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Because it's completed. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. This is a theme that we see. This this Exodus idea is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. And we see it culminating in amazing ways in Revelation 15. We see that God is forming for himself a people. He's calling them out where where they were in captivity. They were serving someone else other than God. And he calls them out. And how did he do so? He did so miraculously. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 15, he did so by parting the sea. And the people walked through on dry ground, forming for himself his own nation. They didn't have to worry about Egypt anymore. They didn't have to worry about that. Their problems aren't over, you know, the rest of the time in the wandering in the wilderness. Their problems are not over. But they didn't have to worry about Egypt anymore. They didn't have to worry about that old service anymore. They had been formed into a new people. God had delivered them. He had bought them. He had rescued them and redeemed them from the domain of darkness, the Bible says. And that's what is pictured in the New Testament as our salvation. That there we were serving God, not serving God, serving the God who is us, or serving the God of this world, or serving the God of our our flesh. Rebels against God. And there we were. And he went in, and we talked last week and the week before about the Passover lamb. And by the sacrifice of his own son, he bought us. He freed us to deliver us out of that domain of darkness and through the impossible sea. Walking on dry ground at the bottom of the sea, the water parting like that is a pure miracle just like the tomb being empty that we talked about last week is a pure miracle. And God miraculously calls us to be His own. And through His own mighty acts that are pictured in the Exodus, that are, that are pictured in all those plagues and in the parting of the sea and all that that goes on, all of those things happened and they are a picture of our salvation in Christ. And so that's where we are this morning. That's where we are. I I started off earlier by talking about a defining moment. What was your defining moment? Well, for me, it's very simple to look for my my defining moment. It was on a, a spring morning a quarter of a century ago. That's hard to believe. A spring morning, and I suddenly became aware, overwhelmingly became aware that God is real. which sounds like great news, but I also knew he was holy. And I know about myself that I am not. And so I was in a pickle because I was in no way worthy to be in God's presence. 
because of my life of sin, my life of selfishness. I had served as my own God. And so I suddenly realized that I was a captive of my sin. That's what the Bible would say. The Bible would say I was in the domain of darkness. And that I would bear the full brunt of the wrath of God on me for my sin. That's the position I stood in. And that's why I wanted Jesus. Because Jesus offered himself as a payment for my sin. He offered himself as the way for me not to be crushed against the sea by the invading army. The pursuing army that would kill me by the wrath of God. But he made a way, an impossible way, through the sea and delivered me through it. And so I turned to Christ. And I looked to him as my only hope. My only possibility of being made right with God. And I trusted him. I repented from my sins. I did not want to go back to Egypt. I I didn't want that. I wanted him. I turned from my sin and turned to Christ. And he saved me. And he took me through that sea with the water parted on dry ground to the other side to make me his own person, to make me his own child, to call me to be one of his, that I would be an adopted son of God. And that's what he offers to you. That's the offer that's there for each of us. There's a powerful, powerful message of the gospel right here. And so with Moses, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Let's pray. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You, Lord, will reign forever and ever. I pray that everyone here would experience that exodus, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would push them right up against that sea where they understand that they are about to be crushed by the wrath of God for their own sin, but that you made a way. You sent Jesus to part that water, to make a way so that we could walk through it on dry ground to deliverance, to serve you, not to serve our old ways, not to serve your enemies, not to serve ourselves, not to serve our flesh, but to serve you. And that is good for us, and that is joyful for us. So I pray, Lord, that you would uh, take anyone here who doesn't know you through that same exodus, that they would look to Jesus as the only way through that sea, the only way uh, of deliverance from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.